Would you join me in prayer as we now turn to God's Word? God in heaven, we have experienced your presence today already in a real and powerful way. We've experienced you in the songs that we have sung. Lord, as we have together lifted up our voices to you. Lord, as we have joined together in prayer for Max and for Bennett. We thank you that you have been here and that you are speaking to us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us now through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to begin this morning by reading uh, the first 12 verses. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Luke writes this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the, for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. Last week, um, after the resurrection, I said that there were three things after the resurrection that Jesus did in order to empower his followers to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. First, he gave them their identity and their commission. He told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He gives them their commission. Secondly, he ascended into heaven. And third, he sent his spirit. So three actions of Jesus after the resurrection that empowers his people to do the work that he's called them to do. The commission, the ascension, and the sending of the spirit. Last week we looked at the commission, and this week we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. Now, there are are three major events in the life of Jesus that get a lot of publicity and a lot of attention by the church. The birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
We have widely recognized holidays around these events of Jesus' life. If you go into the Hallmark store, you can find cards for Christmas and for Easter. But if you're looking for an Ascension card, you're going to have a difficult time finding one. We're going to see today that even though the church maybe has not embraced and celebrated this quite as much as these other events, that the ascension of Jesus is an essential event in the life of Christ, and it's essential for us as his followers to know. Have you ever given much thought to the ascension of Jesus? Maybe you believe, yeah, I know that Jesus is is in heaven, he's on the throne, but what is the meaning of that? What does it mean that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father? What does it mean for him? What does it mean for our world? What does it mean for us? Well, this morning I want to begin by talking about two basic truths that the Bible teaches about the ascension of Jesus. Two fundamental truths that the Bible teaches us about the ascension. The first truth is that Jesus ascended as one of us. He ascended into heaven as a human being. And secondly, the second truth is that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Those are the two truths about the ascension that the Bible teaches, that he ascended as one of us and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in the second part of this sermon, I want to talk about three promises of the ascension. What does the ascension mean for us practically? The fact that Jesus rose as a human being into heaven and that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, what does that mean for us? The Bible tells us that Jesus ascended as one of us. Jesus ascended as a human being with a human body. Jesus was born in Galilee. The great truth that we celebrate at Christmas is that he was born as one of us. Not just looking like one of us, not kind of a human being, but that he was born as a human being, as one of us. That he lived for 30-some years as one of us. He lived in a particular time and place and culture. He had friends and family, and he participated in the life of the culture as one of us. The Bible teaches that he went to the cross and he died a horrible and violent death as one of us. And the scripture teaches that he rose from the dead as one of us. When he rose from the dead, he did not shed his flesh and blood like a snake sheds his skin. He didn't become some kind of other spirit without a body at the resurrection. He has a new kind of body for sure. It's a different kind of resurrected body, but it is a human body. A body that his disciples could touch and hold on to. A body that ate and prepared food. Jesus was raised as one of us. And we are told that he went into heaven. He ascended as one of us. I think I have been prone to assume, or as I've imagined Jesus in heaven, I've been prone to assume that he, when he went to heaven, that somehow his bodily humanity disappeared or dissipated some way, and that he became some kind of other spiritual being, like an angel or something. But that is not what the Bible teaches Scripture teaches that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he ascended as a human being, as one of us. Consider this, that within the divine life of the Trinity, there is a human being. 
In the relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a human being, a human representative, and his name is Jesus. In the life of the Trinity, there is a human representative, the Son of God, who descended to the earth and who took on flesh, who died, who conquered death, and then ascended back to heaven in the flesh. He is fully united again with his Father as a human being. By descending to earth and taking on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, made a way for human beings to share in the divine life. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for the godly life through our knowledge of him who he called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The scriptures teach that the eternal word of God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, descended to the earth, took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, was born as one of us, lived as one of us, died as one of us, was raised as one of us, ascended to heaven as one of us, so that we could follow him there. So that we could follow him into participating in the divine nature. Jesus came to redeem humanity, to take humanity up into the divine, heavenly life. Jesus ascended as one of us. I'll say in a bit what that means and the implications of that for our lives, but that's the first truth. Jesus ascended as one of us. The second truth that the Bible tells us is that when Jesus ascended, he went to the right hand of the Father. This truth that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father is mentioned over and over and over again in the New Testament. I was surprised this week at how often this comes up throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Uh, when he, uh, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. In the book of Acts, at least four times, it is said that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. In Romans 8, verses 33 through 40, 34, it says, Who then is one who con- condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, verse 3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Over and over again. The New Testament writers talk about Jesus at the right hand of God. Do you know what, the, what verse from the Old Testament is the most quoted by New Testament writers? I never would have guessed it before this week. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. That is the ascension. The most, most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. 
the ascension was obviously a precious truth for the early Christians. That Jesus was at the right hand of God the Father. This is a place of authority. It means that he is the one ruling and governing the universe. This was a precious truth for the early church that was going to endure persecution and suffering and shame because of their faith. Knowing that he was on the throne, knowing that he was at the right hand of the Father, was a precious truth for the early Christians. And it should be a precious truth for us as well. And so I want to tell you three promises of the ascension. Because Jesus ascended as one of us, and because he is at the right hand of the Father, what does that mean for us today? Well, first is this. Jesus is in control. The first promise of the ascension is that Jesus is in the place of highest authority. That nothing happens that is not ultimately in his control. One of the amazing stories of the book of Acts that we're not going to get a chance to look at in depth um, during our time here in the book of Acts, but I want to share a little bit about it today, is the story of Stephen and his preaching and his martyrdom. And it's found in Acts chapter 7. I would encourage you to turn with me there. Stephen was an early follower of Jesus, and he has this this great story. As the church began to grow in Jerusalem, uh, one of the things that developed among the church was a feeding program for widows. Uh, Widows in this time especially were often very poor, and so the church, compelled by the gospel, developed this feeding program for widows. Well, the widows began to argue with one another. Some of them believed that they were being overlooked, and so the disciples found themselves uh, kind of administering this program, and they knew that they were called by God to preach and to teach the word. And so what they did is they said, we we can't keep administering this food program. And so let's find some other men who can come around and do this work. And one of those men was Stephen. He was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and they laid hands on him and they prayed for him so that he could be a part of administering this food program because the disciples knew that they were called to preach and to teach and to pray. And so the disciples lay hands on Stephen, and what's the very next thing we see Stephen do in Acts? Preaching and teaching and praying. (laughs) Okay, the disciples couldn't find time to do both, but Stephen did. Stephen found time in his off hours to proclaim the gospel, and he does so in such a bold way that the religious leaders in Jerusalem hear about him, they arrest him, and they bring him in, and then he retells them the entire story of Israel. Acts chapter 7 is a retelling of the Bible and God's mission. Uh, It's taken me 50 weeks to preach that sermon, the Bible and God's mission. It took Stephen one. Okay, he retells the entire story of Israel. I want to read the last part of this chapter. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60, he finishes his sermon in this way. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your forefathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And when they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In this story, Stephen is simply not afraid of death. He speaks boldly and truthfully to these religious leaders who just uh, 50 or 60 days before had crucified Jesus. Stephen knows that Jesus is resurrected and descended. There is no need to fear death. And so as Stephen is being pummeled with stone after stone, he looks up to see Jesus. Where? At the right hand of God. This is a remarkable thing. As this evil thing is happening to Stephen, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in control. He is in that place of authority and power. He is sovereign. He allowed the stoning of Stephen to happen for his purposes and for his glory. And the curtain of heaven is pulled back, and Stephen is able to see Jesus in that place of authority. He's able to see Jesus, that he is in control. And so you would think that as Stephen is being pummeled with stones, and he sees Jesus in a place of authority, you would think that Stephen would say, Stop it! Jesus, you are an authority. You can stop this. Please stop this from happening. Stephen doesn't say that, does he? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father led him, even as he was enduring intense persecution and pain and suffering, it leads him to more fully give himself into the hands of God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the face of evil or suffering, so many of us, so many people will curse God or deny God. How many of us, when something terrible is going on in our lives, something evil is going on in our lives, we're sick, we're frustrated, we're angry. How many of us shake our fists at God? God, why are you letting this happen to me? But not Stephen. When he suffers, he sees Jesus in that place of authority and he entrusts himself all the more into Jesus' hands. And Stephen even goes a step further. Not only does he entrust himself into the hands of God, who else does he entrust into the hands of God? His enemies. He prays for the people that are killing him. Father, do not hold this against them. When we talk about Jesus being on the throne, in that place of authority, I, I think we're tempted to get triumphalistic. We're tempted to scoff at those people who have made us 
our enemies. Jesus is on the throne. Well, they'll get what's coming to them. Jesus is on the throne. We'll win one day in the end. And it makes us strut a little bit. But not Stephen. When Stephen sees Jesus on the throne, he looks at his murderers and he asks the judge not to judge them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Is that your attitude toward your enemies? When you see evil being done, when you're mistreated at work, do you despise those people? Or do you desire God's mercy for them? Who is it in your life, in your mind, that you see as your enemy? Maybe it's a political leader that you don't like. Maybe it's a coworker at work. I don't know who it is, but whoever you see as your enemy, do you desire God's mercy for them? Seeing Jesus on the throne does not make Stephen triumphalistic. Seeing Jesus on the throne gives Stephen the freedom to know that Stephen doesn't need to be on the throne. Jesus is in control, so I don't have to be. I don't have to grasp for control. Jesus is Lord, so I don't have to get vengeance on my enemies. I don't have to win. I can be free to show mercy as Jesus showed mercy. Far from making us triumphalistic or proud, knowing that Jesus is on the throne should set us free to extend mercy to those who would make themselves our enemies. Jesus is on the throne, and it sets Stephen free to act like Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross being crucified, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Stephen is only following the example of his master. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The first promise of the ascension is that Jesus is in control. The second promise is that Jesus is interceding for us. He is at the right hand of God. He is there as one of us, as one who knows what it is like to experience human frailty and weakness. It is that one who knows our humanity, who is there as our high priest, as the one who is interceding for us to the Father, praying for us, advocating for us and our forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus took on human flesh, became one of us, but he didn't do this only for a little while. He took on flesh and he took it on permanently. Jesus wasn't just kind of slumming it for 33 years here on earth and then became something else later. He took on flesh in order to be our high priest so that forever there would be a human being praying for us in the presence of the Father. 
That is where Jesus is. That is what he is doing, and he will do it forever and ever and ever. Hebrews in another place says that Jesus is continually our high priest interceding for us. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man forever in order to intercede for us forever. Jesus is the ascended high priest, standing in the presence of God, praying for us. So many of you, I think so many people in our world, have this impression of God, this impression of Jesus in heaven, and they have this impression that his hands are doing this, pointing his fingers at us, accusing us for all of the wrongs that we have done. But it turns out that he is not standing there, pointing at us with accused accused fingers. Instead, he is standing there with hands outstretched, with the blessing of a priest, and those hands have scars on them. And they say, these scars say, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come, whoever will may come to the throne of grace and mercy and experience the presence and love of God. Do you know that today? Is it your impression that Jesus is always and ever angry at you? When you think about your life, what you have done, Are you so filled with shame that all you think about when you think about Jesus is hiding? This morning, if you hear nothing else, know this. Know that you can experience Jesus in a whole other way. You can experience him as the one who stands at the right hand of God with extended, scarred hands welcoming you into his presence. Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The third promise of the ascension is that Jesus is filling the whole earth with his presence. Filling the whole earth with his presence. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he does not ascend somewhere far away. This is a big problem, I think, that many of us have with our idea of heaven, that heaven is someplace really far away. That is not what the Bible says to us about heaven. Heaven is very close to us. Heaven is any place where God is. I think I've told you this story before, but I've been here almost two years, and so you're going to start hearing stories again. Sorry. (laughs) My daughter Gloria, when she was three or four years old, it was a week or two after our church had vacation Bible school, VBS. And VBS at our previous church was a big deal. It was one of the biggest weeks of our entire, of our entire year. And a couple of weeks after that, Gloria and I were sitting reading a book before she went to bed. And she stopped me and she said, Daddy, heaven is in the sky. I said, well, yeah, heaven is in the sky, but... Heaven is wherever God is, and so heaven is all around us. We just can't see it with our eyes. And she nodded and very confidently said, Yeah, but sometimes you can see it at VBS. (laughs) The ascension is the event that takes what Jesus Christ was here on earth as Lord, as healer, as prophet, as bringer of the kingdom of God, 
And he makes all of Jesus' power and all of his wisdom and all of his resources and all of his authority, he makes that available and accessible to everyone everywhere right now. Which means that you and I and anyone who believes can speak with him at any time and in any place. No longer do you and I have to go to the tabernacle or to the temple to experience the presence of God. He is there, present in your car, with you at your desk at work, with you in your home. He ascended into heaven and because of that has become closer to you than you can ever imagine. And he ascended so that he could fill you with his spirit. And we'll talk more about this next week. But he ascended so that he could fill you with his spirit so that wherever you go, you take the presence of Christ with you. Turn with you to me to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be the last place that we go today. Ephesians chapter 4. We read here uh, some of Paul's thoughts about the ascension and the implications of the ascension. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll begin reading at verse 7. He says this, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he left captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul has this little parenthetical statement in verses 9 through 10. He says this, What does he ascended mean? Except that first he had descended to the lower earthly regions. That's the incarnation. What does he ascended mean? Except that he had also already descended to the lower earthly regions. And so, he who descended in the incarnation is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to what? Fill the whole universe. And then Paul goes on to say, It was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to build up the work of Christ. It's he who fills the whole universe, who then fills his people to serve the church and to serve the world. Jesus ascended so that he could fill the whole universe with his presence. And part of that is that his presence is everywhere that you are. Everywhere the believer goes, Jesus goes with him. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this amazing and, public, uh, amazing and puzzling things. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He will do even greater things than these. Why? Because I am going to the Father. Because of my ascension. Because I am going to my Father, my followers will do even greater things than I did. What does this mean? When Jesus was on the earth, the truth of the matter was he was limited. He was limited. He could only be in one place at one time. And so if anyone at that time wanted to meet with Jesus, they had to travel to Galilee and track him down to be in his presence. The ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit into the life of the church is why Jesus is able to say that those who believe in me will do even greater things than 
than me. Because now, through the fullness of the presence of the Spirit, it's no longer localized in the temple as it was in the Old Testament. It's no longer localized in one person in Galilee 2,000 years ago. His Spirit has been poured out into the lives of his people. Those of us who are his people are filled with his Spirit. And the Spirit of Jesus now fills the church that has spread throughout the whole world. And so whenever we hear Jesus say that whoever comes after me will do even greater things than me, we often think about the spectacular things that Jesus did, the astonishing things, the miraculous things. But what Jesus is saying here is that because he is going to the Father, he will be able to send his Spirit into the lives of those who follow him so that wherever each one of them go, every one of them, each of them, will now be a vessel of the presence of the Spirit to the world. No longer do people need to go to Galilee to meet with Jesus. They can now meet him in you. The greater thing is not the spectacular thing, although many believers do wonderful, miraculous, spectacular things. The greater thing is that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. And as God's people move to every corner of the earth, and as Christ is made known and worshipped and glorified in every tribe and tongue and nation, the whole earth is being filled with the presence and glory of God. Friends, we have this great gift of being able to be in relationship with the one who is on the throne. This morning, do you know that? And do you know him? Maybe this morning you have always understood Jesus. You always understood God is the one who condemns you and accuses you. This morning you can come to know that the one who rules the universe, Jesus, the Son of God, is standing at the right hand of God, and he holds out his scarred hands of blessing, and he says to you today, Come, come, and let's know one another. Come, I have made a way for you to be with me and to be with my Father. You have never entered into that relationship with the ascended Lord Jesus. This morning is the day where your perspective on God can change forever, can change forever. He wants you to know him as Lord and as Savior and as friend. This morning, do you know that Jesus is on the throne, that all of us can live boldly and courageously in the face of all kinds of suffering and evil like Stephen did? We can be free to extend mercy to those who have made us their enemies. When we face suffering, we can know that that suffering can be transformed into good in our lives and in the world. There is a human being ruling the universe. His name is Jesus. He invites you today into a real relationship with him. This morning, if you need to pray, if you want to pray to know what this relationship is all about. We invite you to come forward. If you want to pray with someone, feel free to come to this side of, of, of the altar and to kneel and to pray, and someone will pray with you. If you want to pray on your own, feel, feel free to come to this side of the altar and pray here uh, to, the, to the Lord. Uh, would you join me now in prayer? Our God in heaven, we, we thank you for the truth of your ascension. That when you left this earth, that you did not disappear. 
that you are not the kind of God who creates your world and then walks away. But from the very beginning, you have been intimately involved, that you are concerned, that you love your world, and that you are doing all things to redeem your world and to bring you, bring us into your presence. So Lord, I pray that each of us would know the truth of that today, that we would receive it and take it into our hearts, into our minds, that it would be um, the place that our lives are, are centered on and where we stand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.